Well, friends, good morning, and let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15 for the next bit of our time together. John chapter 15, uh, we'll be going just through the first few verses of John chapter 16. And let me add my welcome to Bill's welcome uh, to those of you who may be visiting with us for the first time today. We're so glad you're here. And this next little bit of our time is really the centerpiece of our gatherings each week. It's where we open up the Bible, which we take to be God's word to us about who he is and what he's done and what he demands from those who follow him. Uh, and, and, And we try to understand what's there. We work through it verse by verse to try to understand it on its terms and its context, and not just because we want to be more well-rounded individuals, better education or what have you, but because we think there's life here. There's joy and hope here that we can't find anywhere else. So we're going to go deep together now in John chapter 15, and we've provided Bibles that should be within arm's reach of where you're sitting now so that so you can have it open in front of you and follow along uh, with me as I walk us through this, this text. And we've provided those Bibles not just for you to use today, but because we'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible if you don't own one. Please do take it with you after today and, and, and keep it and continue to read there. John chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 18 uh, through chapter 16, verse 4. To me, some of the most incredible stories from the history of the church are stories of Christians who are willing to die rather than to renounce their faith in Jesus. Uh, and among all the stories that you could, that you could read... Christians like that who paid the ultimate cost to be with Jesus, the one maybe that sticks out to me more than any other is the story of Thomas Cranmer. I I, I think I really connect with this because Thomas Cranmer, much like yours truly, was just an uber nerd. He was an academic who was much more at home in in a quiet library surrounded by books and a desk where he could do his work than he was where he found himself at the center of the reformation of the church in England, making big decisions with big consequences for the whole church over the entire country. Uh, Consequences that, that ultimately turned really sour really fast for him. Cranmer was, was, was sort of growing up into his, uh, into his leadership position with the church in England's shift away from Roman Catholicism. And it fell to him to help get the, the English language Bible into churches all over the country. It fell to him to write new uh, orders of service and new prayers that people who had never really prayed in their own language before in church could use immediately without having to go to seminary in order to learn it all. It fell to him to make decisions about how the church would be organized and about how the, 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 the gospel that would be at the center of that church would be defined. And he took that work up, even if it wasn't temperamentally his, his sort of work to have to do. He's, his, his influence lives on today remarkably in the Book of Common Prayer, which is just a wonderful guide for devotion if you haven't used it before. Problem is, during that time, it was a dangerous, it was a dangerous time for a theologian to have picked a side. Because the Reformation was so new, uh, because so much depended on what the monarch believed or wanted for churches in their realm, Cranmer's position of authority only lasted as long as a Protestant king's life, and that didn't last very long. When the Protestant king that he served under died, a Catholic queen rose to power in his place. And within a very short period of time, Thomas Cranmer went from being the Archbishop of Canterbury in the best office in the entire church to being a wanted man, hunted down, thrown into prison, and tried for heresy. He was subjected to a long and public trial. Uh, Definitely meant not just to convict him, 
but to, to show the foolishness and the danger of the ideas that he stood for. At one point in his imprisonment, as his trial was still unfolding, they even took him up to a big, tall tower in the city of Oxford so that he would have a nice bird's-eye view of two of his friends being burned at the stake for their belief in the same ideas that he had taught. He watched that happen, then was taken back to his cell. At one point, he, it got to him. I mean, academics sometimes can see all sides of every issue, right? That's what we're trained to do. And boy, when you know that the issue you had marked off for yourself is about to get you killed, nuance starts to seem a whole lot more attractive than it once did. And at at one point, he recanted his beliefs. Under duress, he wrote up a recantation, taking it all back, signed it. That's what the church leaders wanted. They wanted to be able to use this as propaganda to show that this man that that taught you all this stuff, he doesn't even believe it anymore. You can't follow him. Then they they called Cranmer in to a a special called meeting at the main university church at the center of Oxford, put him up into a pulpit where he could, in the presence of all, go ahead and publicly renounce all the things that he had taught. But he had to change of heart. As the time for that big speech came, His confidence in what he had found in the Bible and believed to be true about who Jesus is and how a person is saved by him returned. When he got up into that pulpit, expected to take it all back, he preached the gospel again. (laughs) They dragged him out of the pulpit and out of the church, furious, and took him and burned him. And the story that has come down to us from that time is that Faced with this moment of truth, now strapped in, about to be burned, he reaches out his right hand, the hand he had used to sign his recantation, and made sure that it burned first. It's, a, it's an amazing story. I, I encourage you to read it in more detail than what I've been able to give you today. I wonder, though, how it, how it lands on you. I hear stories like that one, and I, I mean... At least one of my reactions is just a kind of awestruck wonder at a faith like that that could stand up to a test like that. I want faith like that. Or maybe you hear a story like that one and you think, I sure am glad I don't have to face violence like that. It is good to live here, now, not there, and then. I mean, I know Christians are persecuted. They're imprisoned and beaten and sometimes killed. Cramner isn't the only one, I know that, but, but my life has been mostly free of anything like that sort of cost for following Jesus. And if that's what you're thinking, by all means, give thanks. It's a good gift from God to be able to study the Bible and, and find what's there and not have to worry that you'll lose your head over it. That is a good gift from God we ought to give thanks for. But, but if the kind of persecution story that you have a category for is one something like what Cranmer faced... And if you've never faced anything remotely like what Cranmer faced, and if you know you live in a country in a time and a place where you're very unlikely to face anything like what Cranmer faced, then our passage this morning is going to seem especially jarring to you. Because right at the center of this passage, the main point of it is a promise from Jesus to all of Jesus' followers that they will be hated by the world because they're with him. Jesus promises, if you're with me, you will be hated like I was. That's jarring, isn't it? 
I mean, for one thing, most of us probably don't resonate with that. I doubt you've experienced a whole lot of hatred. Maybe you have. But hated is a really strong word, isn't it? Especially for those of us who've grown up in the West with a lot of Christian history influencing our culture. For another thing, you hear that this promise that, that you'll be hated if you're with Jesus. And it's a little disturbing if you take it seriously, isn't it? I don't like to be hated. I really like to be liked. And even if I'm not going to be liked, at least just maybe like a net neutral, just sort of tolerate me. I hate the idea of being rejected by people. I'd much rather fit in than stand out. And on top of that, on top of that kind of jarring dissonance in this promise from Jesus is, is that it can be tough uh, at first at least to see why Jesus goes here from what we talked about last week. We've been working verse by verse, section by section through this beautiful final teaching moment for Jesus with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Just before he would go to the cross and, and die for them, Jesus teaches them what their lives would look like after he's gone. He's helping them prepare for the work they'll carry on when he's not here to do it anymore. As his agents, here, go and do. And last week we looked at how he sees uh, th this community that he's leaving behind as a place where his love will still show up for people to see. That if you abide in his love, like he's commanding us to here, then all of a sudden you'll start bearing fruit of this love and your love for other people. And that community of love will be like a magnet that'll draw people in. That's what we saw last week. They'll think, I want in on that. And we'll say, come on in on that. This vine's got room for everybody. And it always bears fruit because Jesus gives the fruit. But then right after he said this, Right after he's given us this look into the purpose of the church and our evangelistic mission through our love for each other, all of a sudden he's talking about hatred. Friends, we're going to untangle some of these questions together this morning. How does this fit with last week? What should we think about the hatred of the world, especially if we haven't really experienced much of it for ourselves? But I think the thing to know now, before we get into the weeds, is that Jesus is carrying on in this passage with the exact same work we've seen him doing in the weeks before this point. He's still preparing his friends for what's about to happen. He's still helping them know what it'll look like to be with him and for him when he's not here right next to them, teaching them and modeling for them anymore. He's still trying to lay a foundation for a, a new community through which his message continues to go out and among which we grow up into, into maturity in Christ. He's still doing that same work. But now he's telling them to expect something they may not have realized they should expect and that we may not realize to expect either. If you're with Jesus, the world will hate you. That's point number one this morning. But if you're with Jesus, he will help you. That's point number two. Point number one is going to be, if you're with Jesus, the world will hate you. But if you're with Jesus, he will help you. I want to begin by reading the text. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in chapter 15, verse 18, and then read through the first four verses of chapter 16. Jesus is speaking and he says, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour's coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Point number one, guys, if you're with Jesus, the world will hate you. That's the crystal clear message that comes through this text. It's right there on the surface of it, and there's no hidden meaning to uncover. He's really clear about what he means. Verses 18 to 25, and then the first four verses of chapter 16, both focus on the hatred of the world for those who belong to Jesus. But what does he mean by hatred? What should we know about the hatred of the world that he's talking about and how should we respond to it? That's how I want to unpack this first point. What should we know about this hatred of the world that Jesus is, is, is predicting and how should we respond to it? What should we know about it? I think there are two main emphases in what Jesus says through these verses. Two main things to know about the hatred of the world that he's talking about here. The first of those two things is that this hatred of the world is focused on Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it. It'll, it'll be directed toward Jesus' followers only because they're with Jesus. Their words will be hated because their words will be Jesus' words. Their beliefs will be hated because their beliefs will be Jesus' beliefs. Their life will be hated, their orientation in life, because they're living with the orientation Jesus gave to them. Jesus is talking about a hatred that's focused on him. You can see this in several places. I mean, verses 18 to 21, look back there with me. He makes this point over and over and over. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, if you belonged there, you'd be loved, but, but you're not because I'm the one who pulled you out of that. Remember, a servant's not greater than his master, verse 20. So you'll get what I got. If they persecuted me, which they did, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, some of them did, they'll also keep yours. But they'll do it on account of my name. Do you see what he's saying over and over again? Jesus is the center here of the hatred of the world. 
And then in, in verses 23 to 25, he's talking about how when they hate him, they're also hating the father that he came to unveil. Jesus is the center here too. You can't hate Jesus and still be good with, with God. The God who made you and who rules over all the world is revealed in Jesus. Jesus has been saying that from the beginning. So you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the Father also. And for these people who, who thought of themselves as worshiping God, to reject Jesus is to be guilty of another layer of sin altogether. Now, they have, they've been given access to something they didn't have access to before and are saying thanks, but, but no thanks only adding to their guilt. That's what he's saying. And if we're with him, we'll get what he got. Think about it. What was it that the world hated about Jesus? John's gospel's got a lot of examples. I mean, the reality is that Jesus just said a lot of really crazy things if he wasn't who he claimed to be. I mean, chapter six, at the very end of chapter six, People hated Jesus because he was offering them eternal life rather than more out of this life. He'd been feeding people with mirac- miraculously, taking bread and, 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 and multiplying it so that everyone had enough to eat, even though there's 5,000 of them. And people were like, I want in on that. If he can do that for a snack, what could he do to my bank account? I like the multiplying effect of this man's ministry. So they come to him. And he says, no, you missed the point of the loaves. I wasn't actually just trying to fill your belly. I didn't want to give you more out of this life. I want to give you eternal life. And what do they say? Thanks, but no thanks. Even some of his own disciples were out at that point once they realized what he was really about. And in chapter 7, Jesus says explicitly, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus was a truth teller. He saw things that weren't good. He said, that's not good, not okay, not to my father who made and rules this world. He was hated for that. They wanted to carry on with what they were doing on their own terms. And then besides that confrontational side to what Jesus had to say, he just said a lot of stuff that's, that, that, that would be ridiculous and even dangerous for anybody who's not God to say. He claimed that he was one with the father. He claimed that he was before Abraham. He claimed that Abraham, who had lived thousands of years before this point, rejoiced in him. He claimed a right to absolute allegiance. He claimed that he had come to give life to dead people. He claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could get to God except through him. If you want God, you got to come through me. Who says that? These aren't claims you can hear from a neutral place. You can't just hear them and think, that's interesting. I'm glad I got that perspective. On to the next guy. You don't hear it that way. If you do, you're just not hearing him. He's not coming through yet. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this. It's a famous passage. You may have heard this before. In Mere Christianity, he's talking about how, I guess, people in his world had this appreciation for Jesus as a great teacher. You know, that was... C.S. Lewis's business. He was in the business of teaching and he was surrounded by a bunch of teachers and they, they really appreciated that Jesus was a really good one and that he had a lot of good things to say and that if we followed a lot of his advice, the world would be a much better place. But Lewis didn't have time for that. He says, nothing, nothing is more ridiculous than saying, this is a quote from, from some of his friends, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or a madman and something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. What makes the world the world is that it hears Jesus' claims and sees Jesus' work and says, that's a lunatic right there. Or that man is dangerous right there. The world gets the point about Jesus and says, no way. That's what makes it the world. And the rejection Jesus is promising to his followers is a rejection that will be centered on him. Their job is to obey him and to speak about him and to hold the message about him steady. And as they do, he'll get, they'll get what he got. Some will be drawn in by it and find life there. But just like a magnet that's now facing the wrong way, some will be repelled by that force. The hatred Jesus is talking about is one that's focused on him. The second thing you need to know about the hatred Jesus is talking about is that it's fueled by love. It's fueled by love, this hatred. So, so, so back up a little bit. Last week we talked about the love that Jesus came to both give to us and then work out through us. A love that will define the new community as they love the way he had loved them. His people abide in his love. And then over time, his people come to love what he loves, which is his people, the, the, the people he died for. And the, the, the world is a web of love too. It's just focused on other things. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. It's a web of love. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're now part of a different web of love. Now Jesus and his people are threats to what the world loves, and that's why they hate them. The same thing comes out in the first few verses of chapter 16. It's why Jesus' followers should, be, should expect to be put out of the synagogue. This was a big deal. The synagogue was the center for their life, not just religiously, but as a community. It would especially be true for those who were living under Roman occupation where they didn't even have their own real government. Like the synagogue was their place. It was family. It was support. It was stability in a, in a, in a turbulent time. And he's saying, you will be put out of that synagogue like a cancer cut out of the body. Why? Because they think they'll be offering service to God. See, the hatred of Jesus and his people from the world is not usually a kind of sadistic hatred. You know, like just cruelty for cruelty's sake. Like a, like a kid who just takes a magnifying glass to a grasshopper just for the fun of it and burns them. It's not like that. It actually looks like love, attacking a threat to the thing that's loved. 
It's driven by a conviction that they're doing right. That they're serving a true and higher cause. You can see examples of this playing out over and over throughout the history of the church. I mean, in Jesus' day, right away, Jewish leaders like the Apostle Paul before his conversion devoted their lives to rooting out Christianity from Judaism. They saw it as a threat. Again, a cancer that could bring down the hole if we weren't careful. Paul went around tracking down Christians and throwing them in prison, not because he was a cruel man, but because he saw these people as blaspheming against his God. They were a cancer. He had to cut them out. He wanted them gone. Not long after that point, it was the Romans who were, who were dominating the, the, the world of Christianity as Christianity spread outside of Judea and, and into the Roman Empire. But as Christians got larger and larger and got noticed by, by the powerful as more than just a little Jewish sect, they started to seem more and more weird and more and more dangerous to the Roman authorities who before didn't really pay any attention. For the Romans, the problem wasn't that the Christians were, were worshiping some random territorial god. They were fine with that. They had, they had categories for that. And all over the Roman Empire, people were allowed to continue worshiping their gods. But what you weren't allowed to do is worship only your god. You can have as many gods as you want as long as at the right time in the right place you bow down before the emperor. As long as you know who really rules the world. And Christians wouldn't do it. That made them dangerous. That's a cancer right there. If they don't bow down, then their friends and neighbors might stop bowing down. And their friends and neighbors might stop bowing down. And the thing that they loved most, Roman rule, would be threatened. It was love that drove the Romans to persecute the Christians. Last Sunday in our prayer gathering, uh, on Sunday evening, we heard from a team who went to serve uh, some international workers in Turkey this summer. And we talked about what makes it difficult to be a Turkish Christian. Some of the things that they learned and were passed on by workers in that country. In that country, technically, freedom of religion is allowed. You can be a Christian in Turkey. But what we heard is that in, in Turkey, the threat is not, of Christianity is not so much that it's not Islam, but that it's seen as not Turkish. Turkish nationalism is the greatest alternative religion in that land. If you become a Christian, you're accused of being unpatriotic. It's perceived as a rejection of your Turkish identity, even by those who don't actively practice Islam. You can lose jobs. You can lose friendships. You can be disowned or worse by your family and not cause of sadistic cruelty, not because the people in power just want to make your life miserable. It's because what they love is threatened by allegiance to Jesus. And in our country, admittedly, we have had a charmed existence as Christians compared to many places that Christians have lived over the centuries. But even here, in the last hundred years, Christian allegiance to Jesus has, has brought down rejection and difficult consequences, especially Christian teaching about what it means to be human in areas like race and gender and sexuality. It's not a coincidence that black churches have been bombed and burned over the last hundred years. These were places where the truth was told about the dignity of those who worshiped there against the lies that were being told about them out in the world. And the world hates the truth that Jesus has taught. That's a threat 
to be put down. And many of you here are doctors, healthcare workers, educators, tech people. You lump in those sort of three categories and you've got a huge chunk of our congregation. And I know, because we're talking about it, not just because I'm reading headlines, but because we're talking about it, that you guys are feeling more and more and more pressure with each passing year to affirm progressive views on, on what it means to be male and female, on what sex is for and who should sleep with whom. And these views are seeming not just quaint or foolish, but outright harmful, dangerous, like a cancer, a threat to a view of human flourishing that is beloved in the world. We're not talking about hateful, spiteful, vengeful, sadistic people. We're talking about what in many cases are really kind, super nice people, super invested in causes that mean a lot to them, that they understand to be useful to the world, but whose allegiance, whose love primarily, fundamentally clashes right in to what Jesus has told us is true and what Jesus has told us to do. The hatred that Jesus is talking about here, the hatred that all Christians should expect to face and feel in one way or another is a hatred that's focused on him and fueled by love, another kind of love, a love for something else. So how should we respond to this hatred if that's what Jesus has in mind? When he promises us that we, should experience, that we will experience it, how should we be prepared to respond to it? I want to give you a few suggestions. Here's the first one. If you are experiencing rejection by the world, you should ask why. If you are right now experiencing something of the rejection of the world, ask why. Because you want to make really sure that people are responding to Jesus in you and through you, not to you being a jerk or being self-righteous or being condescending. You might have given them other reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus not to like you very much. You ought to do some, some analysis. A few years ago, I, uh, I got the chance to go with a friend to a Final Four match, uh, game in, in Atlanta and uh, you know, kind of doing the, uh, the pregame festivities outside the stadium, came across this, this cordoned off protest zone. You guys have maybe seen these for yourself at some point or another. It was full of protesters with big signs, um, vile signs ugly signs, provocative signs, and manned by people who were shouting, pointing and shouting at anyone who walked past. In their minds, they were representing Jesus. Jesus was not a factor in anything they were saying. His character was certainly not on display in how they were behaving. And, and what came across is that they hated the people they were talking about. And you could see them getting hated by everybody who walked past them. All the looks they were getting, some people even shouting back at them. It was like a vector of hatred, not of love. Jesus had nothing to do with it. Few things are grating, so grating as somebody who thinks too highly of himself and looks down on others. That can't be us as we engage with the world. We got to hold on to Jesus and he's what we offer and he's what we trust and he's what we obey, him and him alone. We want people to do business with him through us. He's the key. So is Jesus front and center in what you're presenting to the world? If, if you're experiencing rejection, is Jesus what they're reacting to in you? Or is it just you? 
Here's another point, another suggestion. If you never experience rejection by the world, you should ask why. If you are experiencing it, ask why. See what's going on. If you're never experiencing any rejection in the world, ask, ask why. Because Jesus is telling us here, that should be normal for Christians. And he said in his most famous sermon ever, blessed are the persecuted. For, for Jesus, it's just natural cause and effect. You, when love for Jesus runs into love for some other Lord, something's got to give. So if you're never feeling this sort of rejection, it's really useful to ask why not. Could it be that maybe if, if you're not feeling any kind of rejection from the world, that your life right now has become too isolated from people who don't follow Jesus? Maybe you're only interacting with folks who agree with you and want what you want from Jesus. I mean, it, it's a beautiful thing to live in a robust, active Christian community. It's part of our calling as Christians to build one and enjoy one. We talked about that last week and for the last several weeks ahead of that. Our calling, part of our evangelism in the world is to have love relationships here among ourselves that are attractive and that offer Jesus. But, but we are in the world and for the world, even if we're not of the world. We want to be mixing it up constantly with people that don't know Jesus yet or don't know the Father, as he put it, and won't yet love what we love. Even if that means awkward or painful interactions, as sometimes it will, we want to be out there. Could it be that you are too isolated right now? Or maybe could it be that, that you're not experiencing any rejection from the world because you've been too quiet about Jesus? That maybe you've got plenty of non-Christian friends, but, but you don't ever really say anything about Jesus and who he is to you? Maybe they don't know who Jesus is to you. If that might be it, I think a great practical takeaway right now that you could work on starting this afternoon would be to think about and work on a concise and a clear version of why you're a Christian, of, of, of how you became one and why, that you could then look for an opportunity to share with somebody. Maybe pick out somebody that you don't think is a Christian and look this week for a chance to tell them why you are. Or maybe, maybe if you're not experiencing rejection from the world, it, it, could it be that, that you've actually grown too cozy with the world? I mean, I said this earlier, the world is not full of, of bad people. Not what you're thinking of anyway. It's, it's full of image bearers who are full of the dignity God put into them and often do really good work because God made them to do that and, and are often really fun to be around and have lots to offer. And, and because the world is full of people that you, that you will be drawn to, the more you like them, the less you'll want to be disliked by them. And maybe they know you are a Christian but maybe you, you really only ever speak about Christianity to distance yourself from those Christians over there. That, that when you speak about it, it's to lean over toward the world and help them to see, I'm more like you guys on this than like those crazies over there. Maybe you only really talk about the places where you find agreement with the world or want the same things as the world. Maybe, friend, in your heart, you're actually more energized by and excited by the things that you share 
the causes that you hold in common, than the promises of Jesus and what it looks like to live for him. Could it be, to, to use Jesus' words from chapter 15 here, verse 19, could it be that you're not experiencing rejection from the world because the world basically loves you as its own and you don't want to lose that love? Somebody said that winsomeness is a great servant but a terrible master. I think that's pretty well put. We want to connect with people. We want to resonate. We want to be able to connect what Jesus offers to what they're experiencing. We want to do it with grace and love. We want winsomeness. But if that is our master, then we will lose the witness we've been put here to give. Here's one last suggestion for you in responding to the hatred of the world. If for whatever reason you're not experiencing much rejection right now, remember that you have brothers and sisters all over the world who are, and pray for them. In Afghanistan right now, after the U.S. pulled its troops out last year, Christians have been hunted down systematically by the Taliban. According to Open Doors, which is a fantastic website for uh, information about where Christians around the world are persecuted uh, that you can, you can use for your prayer life, I highly recommend it. Uh, Afghanistan is the number one most difficult place to be a Christian right now. Great way to apply this sermon would be to educate yourself on why that's the case and pray for those brothers and sisters. You know, in Nigeria, Boko Haram continues sporadic attacks on Christians and churches leaving a cloud of uncertainty over the most normal things Christians do, gather together on a Sunday like we're doing right now. In North Korea, for decades, the very small Christian population has been a target. If people there are caught with a Bible, caught praying or worshiping, you know they can face decades in a labor camp. That usually means a death sentence. Open Doors estimates that right now 50,000 to 70,000 of our brothers and sisters are currently living in camps like that in North Korea. Imagine how burdened you'd be by that if it were your brother or your sister. If you have a, if you have a brother or a sister, I want you to just imagine for a second them in a labor camp. How often would you think about that? How often would you pray? How heavy would your heart be? And now think about what Jesus tells us about our connection to one another as Christians. These are brothers and sisters that we may not know yet now, but the time that we will know them will infinitely outlast the time that we haven't. And for now, they are struggling to hold on in faith. And it's our role to help them by praying praying that their faith would hold on, that their sacrifice will lead others to faith. We, we want to pray for ourselves that when we face our version of what they're facing, we'll face it with confidence and humility and patience and grace. We should expect the hatred of the world if we're with Jesus. We should pray for the strength to face it in faith. But that isn't where I want to leave you. A much, much, much more brief second point is where I want to leave you. If you're with Jesus, you should expect to be hated by the world. That's point number one. But, point number two, if you're with Jesus, he will help you. 
if you're with Jesus, he will help you. Look at what's sandwiched between these two sections about the hatred of the world. Between verses 18 to 25, section 1, and verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16, section 2. Right in between them are a couple of verses about the helper. Jesus is not giving these words to his followers to scare them. Just the opposite. He's doing it to prepare them, to prepare us and to equip us. Let me show you what Jesus is doing to help us here. He's promising his help as we face hatred from the world. And I see at least three things we can expect, three, help, three bits of help we can expect from Jesus to face what he tells us we'll have to face. First, his word will help you know what's coming. Before we even talk about this helper that comes up in verse 26, I think it's important to see this whole section as part of the help Jesus means to give us in facing the hatred of the world. He's telling us in advance so that when we experience rejection, we won't be blown over by it. We won't be shocked. We won't think that the whole time this has been some foolish charade and now it's being exposed and we should have never trusted Jesus to begin with. No, he's saying, verse 1 of chapter 16, I said all these things to keep you from falling away. When you experience hatred, I want you to know that was part of the plan. Verse 4, same point. I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, when these things happen, you'll remember that I told them to you. I think it's, it is sobering to know that we should expect the hatred of the world, but there's, there's something that's freeing about it too. I think it frees us from the kind of headline watching and hand wringing that we might be tempted to, especially in a country like ours where there has been so much freedom of religion for so long. I'm all for it. And I don't think an advancing secular agenda in this country or any other country is, is good for people. I don't think it helps add to more flourishing. I'm not for secularization. But I also just don't think we should be that stressed about it. We should not be worried about it. There is not, there is no such thing and never has been any such thing as a hospitable host culture for true Christianity. True Christianity has always been hated by the world. The only thing that could be, the only difference is whether that's really, really clear in a place like North Korea or sometimes really, really cloudy in a place like America. And if things continue to change, you know what we can expect? We can expect that God will give us all the grace and faith we need to face it. We can expect to have an opportunity to bear an even clearer witness maybe than we have right now. We can expect that he'll get us through it. It, it. We don't need a hospitable host culture to be confident about our faith. Jesus wants more than that for us. And that's what this section is here to do. He's helping us right here through this section. But there's more. Another way he helps us. His spirit, he's saying, will help us bear witness. That's verses 26 and 27. When the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. But not just him. You also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I think those two verses come together into one main point that Jesus is giving us here. His spirit's job is to help you bear witness to Jesus, especially when it's hard. Jesus now bears witness through his people by his spirit. 
His Spirit's job is to give power and clarity and confidence to keep putting Jesus out there, to keep him front and center, even when it's hard. Here's how Jesus put it in Luke's gospel. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. I got you. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He doesn't leave us to face hostility on our own, sink or swim. He stands with us, even works through us by his power. I don't know of a better example of this than Peter. Peter was hearing this taught in real time. A few verses earlier, Jesus had told Peter, you know, (laughs) you think you'll stand with me through anything? You're about to deny that you even knew me. And he did. He went on to do just that. Fast forward just a few months, and Peter is standing in the book of Acts. He's standing before the exact same authorities that sent Jesus to the cross. The same authorities are hearing a case with Peter that they had heard with Jesus that ended up with Jesus dying on the cross. In in the moment of truth, while Jesus was facing that trial, Peter He stood before a servant girl next to a bonfire and he cowered before her. But then before the same authorities that killed Jesus, Peter stands tall and speaks the truth. What happened? Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when my spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Peter got the spirit just like Jesus promised. That's what happened. And that'll happen for you too. You get that help too. You don't have anything to be afraid of. I don't know what opposition you'll face tomorrow or next year or the next decade. All I know is if Jesus is right, and he always is, you will be hated and he will help you. The last bit of help I want to highlight for you The final thing I'll say this morning is that this spirit, the one who will help you bear witness, his spirit will also help you remember Jesus is worth it. This isn't the first time Jesus has mentioned this helper. Here he's calling attention to his role in witnessing to Jesus, but his larger role matters too, especially when we're surrounded by hostility or living through painful rejection. You remember remember what Jesus said The first time he referred to this helper that he promised to send, a couple chapters back. The helper, Jesus says, John 14. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This helper's job is to remind his people that Jesus is worth it. What has Jesus said that this helper will bring to your remembrance? He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, this is John 10, who has given them to me, he's greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. What else has he said to them? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends. 
Nobody loves you more than Jesus, and he won't leave you by yourself. I am the resurrection and the life, he has said. Whoever believes in me will never die. The body they may kill, but his truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. It is his spirit's job to remind you you can trust Jesus no matter who hates you. He's worth it, and he won't leave you, not ever. Father, I pray that you will help us to be prepared to face the hatred you've promised we would face. And I pray that you'd help us to make Jesus front and center so that it's him that people react to and not just us. I pray that you'd help us to hold on to our love for him as an alternative to the loves that will only ever break hearts, never heal them. And we pray that you would help us to trust you to help us so that we don't have to be afraid. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your son, who is worthy. Amen.